0: Welcome to KUOW Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this week's episode, in the summer of 2009, a terrible crime was committed in the South Park neighborhood of Seattle. Jennifer Hopper and her partner, Teresa Butts, were attacked in their home. Teresa was murdered. Journalist Eli Sanders wrote a series of articles in The Stranger about that attack and its aftermath. He received the Pulitzer Prize for the third piece in the series, The Bravest Woman in Seattle. Eli Sanders' new book is While the City Slept, A Love Lost to Violence and a Young Man's Descent into Madness. Sanders and Jennifer Hopper spoke with KUOW's Marcy Silman at Town Hall Seattle about the book, how it came to be told, recovery, our justice system, forgiveness, and not forgetting. Thanks to anna Sophia Knauf for our recording.
1: I'm so thrilled to be here with Eli and the extraordinary Jennifer Hopper. Um, Her story is heartbreaking. It's harrowing. It's inspirational. And Eli's captured that and more in his new book, While the City Slept. We are going to have a conversation, but first Eli's going to read a brief excerpt from the book.
2: Eli. Thank you. And thanks to Town Hall thanks to The Stranger, where the reporting and writing that grew into this book began, and to my family, and to my husband Colin, and without whom this would not be here, and to all the people here who I think are probably very connected to this crime. I think there are a number of people in here who I know, who I've talked to about this crime and its consequences, and I would imagine a number who I haven't met, but thank you for being here and Thank you for helping me. I'm just going to read a short section of the book, but one that I think lays out where it's going. The book centers around three lives that intersected in one terrible Seattle crime, a crime that we know by the end of the first chapter has occurred, although we see it only opaquely. And the survivor of the crime, Jennifer Hopper, is now at Harborview Medical Center wondering if her fiancé, Teresa Butts, has survived. And a Seattle police detective, Dana Duffy, is heading from the crime scene to talk to Jennifer. Detective Duffy got back in the Impala. She drove to the hospital. She walked into Jennifer's room, put her hand on Jennifer's wrist. She said, Hey, Jen, I'm Detective Duffy. I'm Dana, and I'm gonna be one of the detectives working on your case. And I remember Jennifer said, the first thing I asked her was, did she make it? And without hesitation, and I was so grateful for this, she just said, no, she didn't. Jennifer screamed. Some time passed. Detective Duffy pulled out an audio recorder. She turned it on. Okay, she said to Jennifer, let's start at the very beginning. Back in South Park, the Duwamish River moving through another warm day. In the city beyond, people awakening to work. On television, the launch of a familiar narrative. A neighborhood in shock, a manhunt, vows to make an arrest. But the story of a crime like the one that occurred on South Rose Street does not begin with the news. Look down into any stretch of the Duwamish on any day and offer a variation on Detective Duffy's request. Where is the very beginning? The tributaries that feed a moment are vast. At the riverside, countless water molecules in motion, and the din of the surrounding city. It could be concluded, standing there, that a very beginning for what occurred on South Rose Street will never be located. That one might as well ask how three drops of rain, each cast from different skies, came to float in one fouled bend in the Duwamish at the height of summer. Even so, some stories are worth assembling. Some crimes cry out for an accounting. Some offenses indict so much and reflect so much that they demand attention to what was taken, to the taker, to the trials that preceded and followed. There were two women in that red house who, searching for love, had found each other. There was one man who, needing a halt to his psychological descent, had found nothing but an open window all of them human with human limits, The roots winding backward through St. Louis, where Teresa grew up stubborn and tough in a large family, through the mountains north of Santa Fe, where the newborn Jennifer was cradled by two adventurous spirits, through Uganda, the country Isaiah's father fled for Seattle, and through the neighborhoods of the father's new city, where he met Isaiah's mother, where their son was raised amid difficult circumstances, and where, nearly 24 years later, Isaiah's disintegrating life collided with the life Teresa and Jennifer had made. That collision and the histories that precede it have something to offer the present. All three lives have something to teach. Upstream then, eyes wide against the current.
1: And that's just the start of this book. Eli, you just read Some Crimes Call Out for an Accounting. And I have never asked you this. At at what point did you enter the telling of this story?
2: Well, I, I began writing about it. I was sent to cover the crime right after it happened in 2009.
1: Why this crime? This is a city where crimes are committed on a daily basis.
2: Well, at first, there was some mystery about what had gone on, and I think I was sent to uh, to see if I could shed any light on it. It was uh, you know two women killed inside one woman killed inside the, a house, and another woman uh nearly killed and I, I think at the beginning uh, there was some wonder of what what might have motivated that and whether it had anything to do specifically with two women living in the house together, being a couple. And and that was, I think, part of why I was sent there, but it it very quickly revealed itself to be uh, something different, and I began writing about the neighborhood that was dealing with the fear and the aftermath of the crime and the manhunt for the person who had committed this crime. And once he was arrested, uh, I began work on another story, tracing his trajectory in a way that I could then. That was back in 2009. Um, But that was how I initially entered it, with two feature articles in Stranger that I did in 2009. And then I kept connected to the story somewhat, um, but didn't really pick it back up in terms of writing about it until... 2011 when the trial began in King County Superior Court.
1: In this book, there is quite a bit of, of backstory of the judges who were involved in this, with the mental health workers, um, with people like Officer Duff- Duffy, who we just heard about. Um, how, how hard was it for you in putting together this book to really get behind those judicial faces, the, that law and justice kind of front.
2: It was hit and miss. And I think you can see in the book, there was one judge, uh, Superior uh, Court Judge Brian Gain, who would only talk to me through letters. But so we talked through letters. And another judge, Judge O'Malley, who's a, a kind of voluble character, he wanted to talk, you called him up, talk for an hour and that was great, and, um, and he had a lot to say. Uh, you know, what I found in talking to the judges and talking to Detective Duffy and talking to everyone who was involved in uh, what we broadly call the system, they all have concerns and critiques. They're as worried about it and as frustrated by it as anyone, and they, they want to talk about it.
1: In a sense, there are four characters in this book one of these characters of the system and then three people's lives. I don't think of you before this as somebody who has covered crime. So how do you feel about the work that you've done? What, what kind of reporting is this in your mind?
2: Well, I. so I think of myself as someone who was kind of thrown in originally, when I first uh, started working as a journalist in Seattle, to covering crime, but in a, in a police blotter kind of way. My first job in Seattle, writing and getting paid for it, was as an intern at the Seattle Times, and I was on something called the Night Cops Shift. So I'd, the
1: Night Cop Shift?
2: Night Cops is what they called it. Okay. And I would sit there from 4 p.m. to midnight, and I would write blotter items about whatever happened, and what happened was crime, and or what happened that they wanted me to write about. So I actually... You know, beginning with that, and really for the next um, 16 years, I wrote about crime pretty regularly, but never in a way that I found uh, meaningful. I always felt whenever I attached to any crime and tried to write about it that I was not, um, I was barely scratching the surface and I was not telling a story that uh, really gave people the most useful information. It's useful to know what's going on. It's important to know that a crime has occurred or that someone has died. Um, But I always felt like there was a bigger picture.
1: You won one of the profession's highest honors, the Pulitzer Prize for your writing for The Stranger. Why did you decide you needed to expand the story beyond those articles?
2: i had I had actually been thinking before the Pulitzer of whether this could be a book, and um, that was driven in part and continued to be driven even after by the fact that everywhere I looked in this story, there were people whose paths had something to teach, and that that's you know that 's how I describe the book now, but it 's very true everywhere you looked in this. Um, were paths that we could learn from and that I wanted to learn more about. So that was that was part of what drew me into it.
1: Do you think that's true of, of every crime story that doesn't get told the way that you've told this one? I think
2: it, it w- wouldn't necessarily be true in the same way that uh, that, it be, that it wouldn't unfold in the same way as this crime, but I think that almost any crime that we encounter, particularly in in the kind of sporadic way that the media covers crime, almost any of those crimes has something more to tell us. I mean, think just uh, even of the most recent crime that we're hearing about in the city right now, the, the juveniles who were involved in an alleged murder in the homeless encampment. There's a story there, and it's not just who did it, and what's going to happen to them.
1: Um, This is a story uh, of crime. For me, this has also been a story of grace, um, a story of great grace, and I want you all to welcome to the stage now Jennifer Hopper, um, who, when Eli published the story in 2011, the headline was The Bravest Woman in Seattle. Um, If you read that story, if you read this book, you'll know why they called her that. Um, I should add... Meeting Jennifer a couple of years ago totally changed my life and made me think about what it is to walk through the world with grace. So, Jennifer Hopper, I know you're behind that door. You can come out. Now we're all crying up here. Um, Eli just told us, and you heard backstage um, how he has been had been on this story from the very get go, when did you actually meet each other
3: that 's a great question. Um, very soon after um, you know it was, uh, I read everything that was being written and published about it, probably out of my own sense of curiosity about the other players and Colleague of mine, who I actually ran into today this afternoon, um, she was reading um, the article in the Stranger, I think, about uh, South Park, and something about it made her very curious. Like, why is he writing so much about this? Like, what what is his interest? And I don't remember if she wrote, reached out to you via email or some social media, and had what she felt was a really meaningful, you know, back and forth, and really felt at the end of it. This is a good guy. he's doing a good thing, um, and I don't know why, but I said, "Hey, do you think you could like get us together for coffee like I, I want to know who this person is as well
1: Wait, you reached out to Eli I,
3: well through Lara, I
1: guess Eli, how often does that happen
2: <laughs> uh, uh, more than you would think actually people well or I don't know, but people people want to talk to reporters about what they're writing so but not uh not exactly like this, yeah. Um, and yeah, Jen reached out to me through through the mayor yeah. Laura, and uh, we ended up having coffee.
3: Yeah, at a Starbucks, and um, <laughs> uh, what I remember about it is that it was easy. I could tell in an instant that his heart was in the right place, like just, just I just knew. Um, and then it was right around the time that there were lots of questions about whether Isaiah Kalebu would be considered for the death penalty. And I remember Eli asked me if I wanted to comment, and I, well, I'm still working that out for myself, but, um, you know, I didn't want to comment. And what I noticed was that that was okay. There was no pressure. There was no well, I'll sit down with you if you'll tell me something, and I won't if you don't. It was just a meeting of two human beings. And then we never saw each other again until I saw him at the end of a hallway as I'm walking down to testify. And he is there amidst a sea of reporters, and it was that friendly, trustworthy, you know, good face that I you know, from two years prior just knew was going to do something good that day. Um, and I remember very clearly, like, seeing him. I think he was sitting down where everyone else was standing up, so that made it interesting. He was on his laptop, and we caught eyes, and I, and I think this is accurate, but I just put my hand over my chest and nodded to him, and we nodded at each other. And a few days later, The Bravest Woman in Seattle had been written. So you hadn't seen
1: each other in those ensuing two years?
2: There was... uh, Jen had a concert at the Tractor Tavern. So we had coffee. Mm -hmm. I didn't see her again until the concert at the Tractor Tavern, which was the first angel band fundraising concert. And this was January of... December of 2010. December of 2010. So, but it was just watching you perform. Um, And, yeah. And then the next time we saw each other... and, And part of that was because... The way that Jen explained... uh, I was interested when we met for coffee in what would it be like to be asked, because she was being asked by the King County prosecuting attorney, should we put this person to death? What a predicament to be in. And I, I thought that might be an interesting story, but it couldn't be because she wasn't allowed to talk ahead of the trial, so we didn't talk.
1: Jen, when you and I first met a couple of years ago, I wanted to talk to you about forgiveness. You had written your own article that was published subsequent to The Bravest Woman in Seattle, and it was about the process of forgiveness. And um, I, <laughs> it blew me away, changed my life to hear you tell to me, and it was live. It wasn't a recorded interview. Um, and it got me to thinking about the difference of, between forgiving and forgetting. And so about a year ago, I asked you to come back to the station. We talked about this for more than an hour. Talk, can you talk a little bit about both the process of forgiving and the difference between forgetting something that happened and moving on with your life?
3: Well, the first thing that comes to my mind when you talk about the difference between forgiving and, forgetting, and- to be honest, I don't know if I've ever put those two in the same arena before like this. But what comes to mind is that I don't know that forgiveness actually allows for forgetting. I think forgetting is like a mechanism of like denial. And, and it's not necessarily a bad thing, and that works for lots of people. But for me, I think forgetting is a dangerous thing. It, like, it lurks somewhere, <laughs> and it, it's going to be back. Forgiveness and forgiving actually took, like, diving in, you know? Like, actually letting what happened and letting all of those things become part of me. And what I've discovered is that really the first step for forgiveness for me was curiosity. It was thinking... Who are you, Isaiah? Why? Why is this happening? Not necessarily to me, but why was this happening for you? And that curiosity just, you know, kept moving through me and moving through me, and I I couldn't have forgotten that night or forgotten him or forgotten all the things I would eventually learn about him and get to a place of forgiveness. Um, I still don't forget, and I don't know that I ever want... To forget, I do think you can put parts of it to rest. And the thing I think I've put to the put to rest the most is the question why, like why does this happen? Why did this happen to me? Um, but I keep present the question like, what's going on in the world that this is even possible?
1: And Eli, to pick up on that thread, that is something that with this book you delve into. It's portraits of three people, and these are thorough portraits of Teresa, of Isaiah, and of you, Jennifer. So you had that same curiosity. Um, I'm curious at what point, you know, reporters theoretically are objective. I don't believe in that word necessarily, but at what point was forgiveness something that went through your mind as a reporter, did it?
2: You mean whether I had forgiveness? Whether you,
1: whether you had anger, whether you had... whether you carry some of the emotions of a... Of a not a bystander, but an involved party.
2: Uh, well, I think, you know, for the people who even try for objectivity... Day in and day out, it's an ideal, not an achievable place to get to, and in a in a project like this, there is, well, for me, nowhere to be but in it, and so of course I, I've had had a lot of a lot of feelings about it. Um, I don't. Someone else asked me this, and I don't. I don't. I don't feel that it's my place to forgive or not forgive Isaiah Kalebu. It's. Um, that's not. I, I wouldn't feel right about that. But I, in learning about his path and um, uh, the challenges that he faced and the failures um, to help him, I have sympathy for uh, that part of his life. You know, I don't have sympathy for his actions in committing this crime. I don't I don't I don't have sympathy for that.
1: Jen, you're nodding over there. In the article that you wrote for The Stranger, there's a line that still st- sticks with me where you talk about seeing his mother in the courtroom. And that was a sympathetic trigger for you, wasn't it?
3: Absolutely. Prior to that moment, I don't know that I you know, could picture him in any other way than the, the the image that I had of that night, which, you know, there were many moments and many images, um, when I saw his mother, and there was something about the picture that was taken of her, where she was, she had her hand on some sort of barrier in the courtroom. And you could experience, if you looked closely, like, pain and regret, and so many things that I'll never understand. And all of a sudden, it dawned on me, like, oh, he's someone's child. Like, He was her baby, and, you know, you hold a baby and you you have all these hopes and dreams and aspirations, and then in this case, something happened along the way, but nobody looks at a baby or a young child and can see much evil, let's say, Mm -hmm. and so that moment helped me kind of dial back the terror and the fear to a place of, you know, seeing... And experiencing a life and a path and a journey to where he had gotten. Um, and again, I echo what Eli said. In no way did this experience make him less culpable for the actions. Huh. Like, they're very separate. There's responsibility, and then there's, you know, your humanity.
1: And that recognition of shared humanity, not everyone gets to that place and when I first met you and you first told me that story I walked away examining myself and trying to figure out what my capacity would have been and and I found myself wanting in comparison to you I have to say
2: that's, did... that's a common experience including mine I mean that's part of what I hear this all the time and it's part of what uh, drew me to Jennifer's story I couldn't I couldn't imagine myself being able to testify in the way she had, first of all, in the first place, and then find forgiveness for Isaiah along the way in the way that she was able to. Remarkable, stunning.
1: So at what point did you approach Jennifer and say I'm I'm I need to write this as a book. I need to work on this and then and then Jennifer, at what point did you say, sure, I'm happy to talk about this? Or maybe you didn't say that.
2: <laughs> uh, well, I... You may remember better than This is like the
3: newlywed game. Are we going to have the same answer?
2: <laughs> so I think, that, I think that around the time that I won the Pulitzer and we went to New York together, and um, I had been thinking about whether there might be a book in this, and then all of a sudden people were asking me. And I think I was talking to you about it as a possibility then, but I had a, a dim vision of where it might go. Um, and I remember, and cor- you correct me if I'm wrong, but you were supportive of me starting on this path. I the more As I learned more about you, I tr- attributed it to your... Um, your background in the conservatory, your background in the performing arts, the idea that someone has to sometimes find what they're creating. Because it was amazing to me at, at, at the beginning that y- you were basically like, okay, go figure it out. Um, and so that, that's kind of how it began, but we kept in conversation and, uh, and then we had more conversations uh, to help, create the portraits in the book and um, you know it wasn't it wasn't us. we thankfully didn't have to sit and talk about the crime uh, we, you had already described it in your testimony and so we talked a lot about Teresa and we talked about your relationship and how you met and we talked about your past and uh, you, Jennifer helped me construct the narrative that shows your, your paths toward each other and to South Park.
3: It's interesting that he says that, you know, some of it was like dim, the idea of what the book would become. And, and my memory of it is that everything was very fluid. The, I think actually right after he wrote the article, when we barely knew each other, I said something, and it's embarrassing to even say this, but I think I said, like, "Oh, wow, this should win the Pulitzer Prize. I think that's how I said it. Um,
2: (laughs) That's how my father-in-law says it also. (laughs) You don't
3: know. I'm I'm not a writer. (laughs) Um, But but I was very excited, and I don't even think I knew what the award meant or or the gravity of the award, but I knew it was special. I knew what he had written was special, and it was special to me. Um, And then when he did win, which... Maybe I was never—I was surprised and not surprised. Um, he took me to New York to receive the award with him, and I had lived in New York for ten years, so there was a home element for me that weekend. I saw Teresa's brother Norbert. I mean, it was a beautiful weekend for me, and there was no question to me. Like it was just—he was always going to write a book. I knew it. I didn't even think about it. I'm, I know there was a lot going on in your brain about what that was going to look like and be like and feel like, and. It was just bright and shiny for me. It was clear as day.
2: Part of the reason, and I said this earlier before we came up here in a small gathering, but I think it's worth saying again, one reason that I thought you needed to be there was because you told this story before I ever did. The story that won the Pulitzer is constructed around your telling of the story of that night. And so it just didn't, it made no sense for me to go, you know, by myself. I, that was a big part of why I wanted you to be there.
1: Are you just saying that you just wrote down the words? No, that no, what I'm happened. not. But <laughs> no, we were gonna have no, a no, fight. no, 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 no. I, I,
2: <laughs> but if you look at the uh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm. You,
1: you take that credit. I'm, I'm, you won that Pulitzer Prize. I, yes,
2: I'm proud of the craftsmanship of the story. Yes, I, I, yes, but. It is a story that moves uh, moves in and out of the courtroom f- through, in most cases, Jennifer's words. And so without that, there is no story.
1: So it's interesting you're doing this with your hand, because I was thinking, some of you probably have read this book already in galleys, but a lot of you haven't, and you should all go buy it from there. You buy it over there. Um, I think of the story as I, I was thinking it was a braid but you use this image of the Duwamish River so it's this weaving around and it is a story of a crime but story of lives I mean Jennifer you lay bare a lot about your life and your family well before this ever happened and I'm not sure if that was what you thought you were opening yourself up to but I wonder how that was for you?
3: To, to actually speak about it or to read All about of it? it. Okay. To, to,
1: to relive it. <laughs> to, you can tell me how it was well, yeah. to read about it too, but.
3: Um, I am very, very much at peace with my life leading up to Teresa. I mean, like any human being, I look back and I'm like, why did I do that? Or what was I thinking? But I don't have any. Um, There's nothing about anything that anyone's going to read in this book that I have, like, one ounce of bad feelings or shame about. Um, Telling Eli, like, sitting down with Eli multiple times over the course of a year, um, it just felt like sitting down with a friend, you know? Um, And reading it, other than the fact that there were a couple of moments where I thought did I really tell him that? Wow. (laughs) Like, Oh, geez. (laughs) How many glasses of wine were we in (laughs) at that point? But but no, again, who gets to have a telling of their upbringing, the good, the not-so-good written in such an extraordinary voice and with so much honor? Who gets that? It was like the greatest gift I had ever had, and Would I have rather had the story lead into a, you know, happily ever after? Sure, but that's not what happened, you know? And it was just amazing. And then there were moments where, you know, I learned things about my mother from the time that she spent with Eli that I didn't know. Like, you know, you did that after school? After college? What? So that, again, was another gift. And then all of the other interviews he did with people about their experience with me in high school, college, and beyond... I cherish the words, and I cherish the chapters. And to be honest, I feel the same way about being able to dive into Teresa's life. And then subsequently, to get to know the Kalebu family and what they went through and some of the similarities in journey and path. I think I might have called you at 2 in the morning when I was reading it, like, what? (laughs) Like, I had no idea there'd be so many little parallel paths Walked, um, and and I guess you have to read it to know what I'm talking about. But um, it's it's a gift. It's just a gift. That's my experience.
1: So, Ilan, I'm curious. You both said a bit earlier that it was a a sort of um, dim. There was going to be a book. That that was what you knew. At what point did you realize that it was going to be these lives? in the framework of an event and the, and the system that had to deal with both Isaiah and, and the crime.
2: I, I saw early on that it, there was a story to tell about uh, systems that had failed. So that was always going to be a piece of it, and I didn't know how to get there. And, you know, stories about the system are... Uh, you, need, you need a life to um, take you through it. And in this case, there are three lives that help illustrate uh, the cost of the f- flawed and fragmented systems we create. So I found along the way the, the way of uh, bringing those lives together um, in the narrative. But... Um, It wasn't clear to me at the beginning how exactly I would do it. And I actually tried some of it in different ways.
1: I saw you from time to time during the course of your writing this. You come up to the radio station for other things. And we didn't talk at that time about what kind of emotion you had. Um, I'm I'm curious, Jen, to your response. You're, You're reliving... You're reliving your life, Eli is trying to um, make sense of of lives and pain and and going forward How did it feel for you to be surrounded? You took a leave of absence from the stranger, so you were theoretically working on this full time
2: i was I was working on it full time
1: and and so i mean. Did, was it exhilarating, or did it, it sometimes feel suffocating, like you were underneath a mound of, of, of emotion?
0: Uh,
2: yes and yes. I mean, there's, yeah, it's just that, and any writer or journalist probably, I think, I don't know whether this is my experience, goes through those cycles, you know, the alternating exhilaration, suffocation, and many, many other feelings as well. It was, um, I'd never worked on something this long in terms of time duration, but also in terms of length of pages. So I didn't know what I was getting into in that sense. And um, it was really freeing in a lot of ways. There's just that, that um, benefit of time that you're talking about, to talk about something one day mm-hmm. and wait a month and come back and talk about it again. I mean, that, you never, I never get to do that otherwise in my work. And, um, or I rarely do and so th- that was great but at the same time you were carrying um, you're carrying heavy stories for quite a long time
1: How you were carrying heavy stories how much responsibility did you feel um, to the stories and, and to Jennifer who you have now a relationship with
2: I feel a responsibility to Jennifer. I feel a responsibility to Teresa and her family and her siblings. There are a lot of them. <laughs> uh, so a lot of, lot of siblings to be responsible to. And I feel a responsibility to Isaiah's family. To Deborah who spoke to me. To Isaiah's mother. I mean, um, the responsib- the way that we all talked about this story is that there was no use going back into it unless there was a purpose. And I had a sense of purpose about it. I shared that sense with Jennifer. I shared it with everyone I talked to. And my responsibility, as I saw it, was to achieve that purpose. And that's my hope. I hope that I, I hope that it, the book does that.
1: So, Jennifer, you wear two hats because you are a private citizen who had a heinous crime happen to you. Now, in a sense, you're a public figure. What kind of responsibility do you feel towards maybe other victims of traumatic, violent crime or to make public change when it comes to the mental health system or the judicial system or victim support services?
3: I think that's most definitely still un- unfolding. Um, I think when Eli first started writing this book, I knew that it would most likely go in a somewhat you know, mental health direction and, and was going to start asking those questions. So I've been thinking about it. Um, I would say that Where I'm at right now is that the responsibility I have is to continue as best I can to live an honest, compassionate life and just be like someone who can be counted on for that and then the rest will unfold. I think if I start there, (laughs) that's a good place to start and... I'm open, and just be open to continuing to talk about everything, to be vulnerable about everything that happened, keep the lines open to the community of survivors, and on some level, like, the community of perpetrators that maybe are being failed by the system. Like, that's another thing to consider. And again, I don't know what that'll look like, but I'm open
2: I, I was just, as you were saying this, I was remembering another part of the, I'm too narrowly describing the purpose that we talked about because a large part of what we talked about was letting people, and a lot of your work in talking to survivors has been this, letting, letting people see your path forward because it's inspiring and people can benefit from hearing it, seeing it, reading about it, um, learning from it. And so that was a part of the purpose too. And um, we talked about it already, but to be able to put forward your example of forgiveness, the the place that you arrived, and um, to suggest that as a possibility, mm-hmm. not not a lot of people are able to get there in the way that you did. So that's another. That was another aim.
1: You do. You mentioned earlier the Angel Band, and that is a fundraising project that you've been involved with I, with some of Teresa's friends, I believe, and um, that's raising money for victims. And so there are you. You live with purpose and compassion. You still give your music for a reason. Um, do people reach out to you who have a need to learn more? from you, one-on-one.
3: They do, and I don't know that they reach out, or I don't know if I've been reached out to from a perspective of a literal, you know, I need to learn from you, but people want to share with me. They want to um, tell me their story. Um, One in particular I remember is a woman who came to our first very large angel band Concert at the Neptune a couple of years ago, and she came because she was a huge fan of Brandy Carlile, and you know she learned about the project through that. Came all the way from Vancouver up north, and she shared with me that she had survived um, a sexual assault at I'm, I might get this wrong, but 14, and that she just never talked about it. And it's funny, because at the concert, we didn't really talk about sexual assault. We didn't talk about the crime at all. But there's this underlying purpose that, gets, that shows up there. But she wrote to me that her daughter is now 14, and that she'd never told her daughter she was going to tell her daughter what had happened to her, and what a difference that made for her. Fast forward, just a few weeks ago, she reached out to me again and said that her daughter... Was doing a pro- did a project at school in which she was focusing on, you know, s- sexual violence and and mentioned in front of her classmates that, you know, her mother that it changed their relationship and that, you know, this woman was inspired by this woman named Jennifer Hopper. I mean, I read these things and I'm like, what? <laughs> and so though I do get reached out and people share their stories and and again, it's such a gift to have even a glimpse of how just showing up and talking about my journey m- might have someone have a different experience in their life. like uh, It's a miracle to me.
1: Eli and I have already said you changed our lives. Eli, you, this book now is published. It's in the world. Um, you have spent the last seven-ish years off and on immersed in this I mean how do you move on as a journalist
2: I'm not allowed to until the book is a little further out into the world But
1: it's already published you're you're done (laughs) you you have to do these sorts of events but other than that
2: Um, but I actually well I don't know I mean, is one answer. And, um, and move on. This will move with me. And so uh, I hope that I find additional things to do along my path, you know. But, but I don't expect to just close the door on this and, and say goodbye. It's, that's, that's, not, uh, that's not how I imagine it.
1: Um, we have a, a short amount of time for questions, so there's a microphone here and a microphone here. And as Katie kept saying, questions, she just wants statements, she wants questions. And then Eli, I don't know if Jennifer will go over there too. Maybe you both will go over there and sign books. Um, but if you haven't read this book, you, you should. It's pretty remarkable. So here she comes, brave woman.
4: So I I do have a question, and I do have a statement. Eli, your writing is amazing. I was getting my hair cut today, and I mentioned this to my hairdresser, and she said, I read that story, and I was gripped by the telling of it. So thank you. That's not equal to a Pulitzer, but it's pretty important.
2: (laughs) I'll take it. Thank you. Yeah.
4: And I'm going to use it in my book group. Uh, But Jennifer... I've seen you speak a couple times and tonight you talked about forgiveness and uh, you mentioned Isaiah's mother and I'm wondering if you have met him at all personally in one to one or in a, in a, other than the courtroom, if that had any influence on you and if you intend to visit with him again, visit with him or just what your contact has been with him. After?
3: That's a good question. Um, I have had no contact with Isaiah Kalebu or his family. Um, I don't know that I would choose to have any contact with Isaiah, yet I would without a doubt be open to having a conversation with his mother or his sister or his other sisters and brothers. Um, after reading what they've been through, I would be honored. Um, but I don't know if it would be appropriate for Isaiah and I to converse in that way. I don't think it would make things better for him or me.
1: Eli, you did not have direct face-to-face contact with him either, did you?
2: No, I. Well, in the during the trial, we were in the same room, but that wasn't a conversation, obviously. And then during the during the work on the book, I tried. Um, I think I had old, you know, kind of books in my mind. I wrote letters to him in prison. And then someone told me, uh, many years into work on the book, oh, prisoners in Washington State have email. So <laughs> so I got an email account. There's a, there is, you'll be shocked by this. The state has outsourced to a private company the work of setting up email accounts, and then the company makes money off of... Um, well in this case me and so I would buy stamps to electronic stamps that he could use to write me and I would write him emails and uh, so we had a brief email exchange which you'll see in the book and to sort of sum it up he this exchange was last year so recently and it didn't Suggest to me that he was in a better psychological place than he had been in two thousand and eleven uh, or before that, and that partly highlights to me the fact that uh, someone who really when you read his trajectory in the book, you know if you haven 't read the book, this may um, you may be thinking what are they talking about um, but when you read his trajectory from, you know, youth into adulthood into age twenty-three, when he committed these crimes, he needed a more robust public mental health system than our state provided. In other words, than we provided, all of us. And uh, due to that failing, he is now sitting, and his own actions, but also due to that failing. He's now sitting in a state prison, not very well treated for the rest of his life, at a very high cost to taxpayers.
1: Failure of that mental health system, but also a failure of communications between the judicial system and the mental health system.
2: Yes, and within the judicial system. So this is one example of uh, one of the failings that I point out in this book. The mental health system has its problems, and those trace to neglect and cuts that have been instituted. For example, uh, in the wake of the Great Recession, 2008, uh, the state instituted a $23-plus plus million dollar cut to our mental health services. Well, 2008, 2009, that is exactly when Isaiah Kalebu was on the descent that led to these crimes. But also in that period, he was bouncing in and out of the criminal justice system, And the criminal justice system in our state, for years, state Supreme Court justices have been on a campaign they call Justice in Jeopardy. And they don't really know how to put it more starkly, but people aren't listening. And one consequence of this, this underfunding of our criminal justice system, is that in the case of Isaiah Kalebu, he was out uh, on orders from one judge, a superior court judge, to go to community treatment to not get in trouble with the law again. He ended up not in community treatment, and no one communicated that, and he stopped going. And then he got in trouble with the law. He got into an altercation with police in a park where they tasered him, shot him with beanbag rounds. This was a good de escalation, in a, in a sense, you know, police uh, refraining from shooting someone. But uh, he ended up in court in district court in Tacoma. And so, here he is in district court in one county with a superior court judge in in another county having said, you better not end up in anyone's court. And in the state that birthed Microsoft and over the years has given Microsoft millions if not billions in tax breaks, a district court judge's computer cannot communicate sufficiently with a superior court judge's computer for the one to see what the other has said specifically. And so Isaiah left that district judge's courtroom. And not long after that, he scared his aunt so bad that she filed for a restraining order against him. Alarms also didn't go off then. The next day, she was killed in an arson that people believe, to this day, Isaiah may have set. And not long after that, the crimes against Jennifer and Teresa.
1: Hi, Eli. This is for you. I'm curious what you see as next steps for us as a community of how to actually address this breakdown in our systems, and and your own involvement. Are you planning on like writing along this more and doing more investigative journalism, or if you have any thoughts along that for yourself?
2: I mean, I hope to keep writing, and um, and I yes, I hope to make some use of what I've learned in in the writing of this book, um, but. One major lesson for me of this book was the cost of failing to invest in preventative interventions. And so we are—I was talking about the cost of Isaiah being in prison for the rest of his life. To pay for his trial, you know, we paid to—the public, we the public paid to prosecute him, we paid to defend him, we paid uh, to keep him in jail while he was awaiting trial, we paid for visits to Harborview that he had to make during the trial— We paid for his appeals, and now we pay for his incarceration. That's going to be more than $3 million over the course of his life. It would not have cost more than $3 million to have appropriate interventions at multiple points along his path. And so I hope that we can get get involved in pushing people toward preventative measures. They don't sound sexy, and for politicians they're not really exciting because you can't cut a ribbon on prevention. If you have invested sufficiently in prevention, by definition, you you can't prove what's happened because it didn't happen. But in a story like this, you can look backward and see the cost of failing to invest in preventative measures. And so you're asking what one thing I, I wish people would do. I wish that they would rattle the cages of the legislators a little bit more to make preventative Investments. And what I mean by that is, it is as simple as a properly funded public mental health system, criminal justice system. They're both part of the social safety net and, and a robust social safety net in general. That is a powerful preventative measure, but there are others. We, we to er, probably the credit of everyone in this room in King County, just passed a measure uh, recently called Best Starts for Kids. That is a great. Set of preventative interventions. If you didn't hear about it, it's because people get so bored by that idea that they don't talk about it a lot. But it is going to change lives and save money over the long run. And if we can get our heads as a state around the benefit of preventative investments, which are really just investments in community health, that would be wonderful.
1: Did you know these things before you started working on this story?
2: Not, not, in, not with the um, depth, I guess, or depth of feeling that I have now. Um, no.
1: I, I think this is a good place to end because now you all have to read this so you know exactly what he's talking about. Eli, congratulations on an thank amazing you. piece of work. And Jennifer, thank you. Thank you.
0: That's it for this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. Eli Sanders' new book is While the City Slept, A Love Lost to Violence and a Young Man's Descent into Madness. Sanders and Jennifer Hopper spoke with KUOW's Marcy Silman at Town Hall Seattle on February 3, 2016. Thanks again to anna Sophia Kanoff for our recording. ¶¶